.NET Rocks is being sponsored today by Text Control, the company behind TX Text Control, a Microsoft Word-inspired document editor library and document processing engine for your applications. TX Text Control is fully customizable and programmable and is available for most platforms, including ASP.NET MVC, Web Forms, WPF, and Windows Forms. Recently, they released their Angular and Node.js versions that allow the integration of WYSIWYG document editing into your web apps. TX Text Control really shines in applications that do mail merging and reporting, where Microsoft Word-compatible templates are merged with JSON data in the client, or pure server-side applications that create Adobe PDF documents. So, try TX Text Control for free and see the live demos at textcontrol.com slash demos. Hey, we're here. We did it. .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And we're here at NDC, the APIs panel with three distinguished guests. Uh, Sean Wildermuth is here. Hi, Sean. Hey there. Irina Skirtu is here. Hi, Irina. Hi. And it's Heather Downing. Aloha. And before we get started today, I just want to say hi to my friend Richard Campbell. How you doing, Richard? I, you know, busy as all get out, man. I got nothing to complain about. Like, there's lots to work on. I've been home a lot. Uh, obviously, the streaming rig, been tinkering with it endlessly because they're very popular right now. They are. They are. You've been building some crazy stuff. I've been doing some really crazy stuff. We're using vMix here to do this uh, live composite shot and all these callers. So that's what I've been doing. And uh, I'm also rebranding Pwop Studios to be a live stream production company. I'm basically adding software on top of vMix and getting into the production side of things. So uh, giving speakers a remote control so they can change the scenes themselves and uh, do sort of a, a add a little bit more to the whole conference experience than you get with just Zoom or Skype or one of those tools. I want to make it drop dead easy for speakers and people to just put on a really good live stream. I liked that there was nothing to install. You literally sent me a link and boop, here I am. Yeah, so that's what I've been working on. So if you're a speaker or you're putting on conference and you want to get beyond just the sort of standard Zoom uh, Brady Bunch effect. I like a little Brady Bunch, but no, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. Roll the crazy music. All right, well, today, if you go to 1678.pwop.me, you will see this uh, Azure Remote Rendering with HoloLens 2. Essentially, Azure has a mixed reality service called Azure Remote Rendering. Uh, quote, it solves the challenge of viewing complex 3D models on the HoloLens 2 device without losing polygon detail or spending valuable time downsampling. The article explains why this is such a big milestone for mixed reality developers and answers questions about how the new service works. So essentially, this is a, a GPU in the cloud that is doing all the rendering in real time for your HoloLens. And if you're interested in this kind of stuff, there are SKUs of VMs in Azure that have GPUs attached to them. 
So you could just create a spin up a new VM that has, you know, the NVIDIA drivers or anything like that. If you want to do um, streaming or sampling, I'm actually using it for uh, live streaming, spinning up vMix in the cloud. Uh, it's just, it's just very cool. And this is a great example of using cloud for, uh, for graphical things, not something that you would be normally doing. So there you go. That's awesome, dude. Love it. That's really neat. It is. I don't have a HoloLens 2, but you know, if I did, I'd be hooking it up to Azure. I'm still waiting for mine. <laughs> oh yeah. You ordered one? Yes. I ordered one because I am that nerd. I am that nerd. They're not cheap. <laughs> I, I have one of the original ones, but, you know, the, the spousal acceptance factor of spending that much on a toy is pretty not high. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have that problem, so there are some benefits <laughs> there, but I will tell you that I'm completely obsessed with being able to do VR and mixed reality right now. I play Beat Saber twice a day to keep up my... You know, energy, and I'm interested in building things that are more active, and HoloLens makes that happen. That's pretty cool. Okay, so HoloLens is actually part of your ex exercise program. <laughs> it will be when it gets here, but right now, I'm using yeah. the Oculus Quest. <laughs> awesome. Okay, that's very cool. Good. All right. Well, Richard Campbell, who is talking to us today? We, well, we only talk about APIs so often, but I grabbed a comment here off of show 1511, which is from January of 2018. Wow. Remember 2018 when you could go outside and everything? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a show we did with Daryl Miller talking about openapi.net, right? And that was, you know, specifically a conversation around how we build APIs that work against multiple languages. Yeah. Which I think is an, you know, absolute talking point here and now. So we were clearly thinking about those kinds of problems and, uh, and open APIs, of course, continue to mature. Two-year-old conversation now, but still super relevant. And this comment comes from Max, who says, with OpenAPI defining the behavior of an API in a standard way, standardized way, it makes communicating with it a breeze. I've really enjoyed working with it, but it could still be better. Certain languages still don't integrate with it particularly well. And that, to me, is super interesting, just that problem of, you, you think about, we're continuing to have more languages in our development stacks, right? I mean, we've had folks working in Haskell as for back-end services. Have you built APIs that are tolerant to that, that they're able to call to it reliably? And so, you know, Max is uh, pressing against this point two years ago, but still pressing against it now. So it'd be great to loop back on the subject. So, Max, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .edrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Sign it virtually yours. <laughs> rocks humor in the age of the coronavirus. That was deep, man. I'm I got to think wow. about that for a minute. All right, so now it's time to introduce our panel, our esteemed panel. Sean Wildermuth has been tinkering with computers and software since he got a VIC-20 back in the early 80s. As a Microsoft MVP since 2003, he's also involved with Microsoft as an ASP.NET insider and client dev insider. He's the author of over 20 Pluralsight courses. He's written eight books. He's an international conference speaker and one of the wilder minds. You can reach him at wildermuth.com. He's also making his first feature-length documentary about software developers today called Hello World, the film. And you can see more about it at HelloWorldFilm.com. It's Sean Wildermuth. 
Hey there. Hey. Happy to be here virtually. Uh, Irina Skirtu is a Microsoft MVP for developer technologies, software architect, C++, did I say that right? CTT plus technical trainer and Microsoft certified trainer, always in a quest for latest trends and host practices in architecture.net and the world around it. Irina has more than 700 hours of delivered trainings, workshops, and presentations, being passionate about domain-driven design and microservices with all their ups and downs. She's the founder of .NET Yash user group, where she tries to gather people that are willing to share their knowledge with others. It's Irina Skortu. Left to put in an audience, right? Yeah, um, here you go. And Heather Downing is a passionate coder and entrepreneur. She has experience working with Fortune 500 companies building enterprise-level mobile and .NET applications. She spends her spare time at tech conferences supporting the growth of new developers of all genders, ages, and backgrounds. When not coding, Heather spends her time as a competitive equestrian and learning the art of mounted archery. She's basically, uh, what's cat? Zena. She's an elf. Who is it? Who is All it? Cat from? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, of the above. Yeah. Welcome, guys. Thank and you. And I guess the topic is building APIs. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not just the code of how to build an API, but it's the design of how to build an API that's probably even more important, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, I, uh, Starting from design first, I think, is important. Um, but there's also the – I'm trying to uh, push this idea of uh, so it, sort of polyglot APIs. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of different API um, technologies, and they don't all work the best for every different um, um, sort of scenario. You know, REST works good from the web to the server, but – uh, inside a between servers and a microservice, we probably want something else. But if we want to go and do uh, streaming, we might want to use something else. Um, and so the idea of, of a, a mix of different technologies, sort of like we did with relational and non-relational databases. Right. Um, I guess, you know, how you lay these APIs out and group them together is probably the first decision that uh, developers of APIs have to make, isn't it? I think so. Anybody got a comment on how uh, how to approach that? The go-to option now is just pick something, do HTTP, REST, or let's call it REST APIs everywhere, <laughs> and shove it to production. I mean, I've seen a lot of folks doing this without thinking at the API design or the constraints or the domain and, and anything. And they end up with a big ball of mud. <laughs> right. Not a mm -hmm. monolith, but smaller big ball yeah. of Lots mud. Lots of monoliths. A mudolith. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I have a couple of things that I, I like to look for when I consume an API. So when I'm going to build one, naturally, I want to build something that I've consumed that I enjoy, right? The, the interactive nature of it. I think for me, the first one is... It really needs to be self-descriptive and discoverable. Like if you create an API that has a whole bunch of shortened versions of what their actual names are, nobody's going to understand what that is. And you're going to have to go to great lengths to do additional documentation other than just allowing people to hit the API and take a look at what right. you've got. 
So you know, no, get one, get two, get three endpoints. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really help. <laughs> it's like uh, the equivalent <laughs> of a variables named a dollar sign in basic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do think that there are some good examples out there of some APIs that are, are fun to interact with because they're free. I, I think that we sometimes fall into the hello world scenario where we literally just copy the structure that was put out in a sample and we don't think about if somebody knew nothing about what I'm trying to build, how would they be able to, you know, handle this? Do the verbs actually match what's happening? I mean, if I right. do a post, is it really a post? I mean, am, am I actually updating it, uh, with that correct verb? Sometimes people just overload verbs and have them do a whole bunch of things. And then mm -hmm. that's very confusing to the consumer of the API. So it's important to be very, very clear and just follow some basic standards. In my, uh, I have a course on designing APIs that isn't about, you know, what technology is being used behind the covers. And I encourage the students in it to start with paper, to literally design your URIs and design your um, payloads, because a lot of people worry about or think about the design of an API being just the uh, URL, right? Just movie slash one or person dot two. Um, but payloads are also part of that design, understanding what you want that payload to include in in different scenarios. I love that thought, Sean. Be it, and headlers. Yeah, absolutely. Be, you know, uh, or on a whiteboard. But to physically write it out is to m really make people's hands hurt for their complexity. Right? Like if it's a pain yeah. to write out, it's not any fun to type out either. No. Sure. And if it's not if it's not clear on paper, then it's probably not intuitive, right? Yeah. Um, a, what happens in a lot of REST APIs is people look at their database schema and just mirror it. And that's often not what you really need to do. Right. You know, the difference between what a user needs and what you have happened to be stored in your 15-year-old Oracle database might be different. I, th I think that APIs are like a use case, right? APIs can be a use case. Like, why would somebody need this information? Or why would somebody want to give us this information? They should be use case based, not this is the structure that I've got to store in for sure. Before you even not build an API it. and talk about that, I think a good idea is to have a separate model from, from the entity. Like the entities are what we talk to the database with, but then have another abstraction, the model, which is what the API and the client work with, right? Well, I agree. I usually work from the API back for those models, though. Yeah. Because if if the need is to get, you know, a customer, what what is the user really doing with that? Are they listing the customer and the phone number just so they, you know, someone can make a cold call? Or do they want the customer in every order they've ever had? Right. It, it can be very easy to get bogged down. And so instead of like, oh, I need to make a customer model that looks like the model – what what is the API actually serving and really understanding that ahead of time is hard because not everyone lives in, you know, Greenfield or has more time, but I think it's worth the effort. I think it's it worth is. the budget of time. Plus, do you really need to send foreign keys to the client? You know, that no. kind of thing. You can filter or out a lot of stuff. Or even sensitive data. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's the security question. Oh, but I've got a token. It should be safe. Not from the user. <laughs> User still, <laughs> do you know what I mean? We forget that there are vectors of, of security, you know, of all sorts. Sure. 
But on the other side, because REST APIs and people don't do REST as it should uh, be implemented, GraphQL <laughs> showed up. And a lot of people are just switching to GraphQL because ah, REST is bad and so on. Mm. Yeah, it's not that bad. You just implement it not so correctly. So uh, I think a problem with overfetching, underfetching, and so on, it is in a small part uh, a problem of bad design over that API or lack of design. A GraphQL, uh, that's why I think it, it has its use cases. But in my opinion, now it has so much traction that it shouldn't have. I mean, not so many APIs need to allow their clients so much flexibility. So we've talked about GraphQL before a little bit, but for those who, this is the first time hearing about it, why don't you give us the uh, elevator pitch? So uh, GraphQL is basically uh, some similar to JSON schema that the client will send each and every time to specify uh, fields that it needs. And they, they said that this way, you just eliminate the underfetching and overfetching uh, problem over uh, with the REST APIs. So you say, I need the first name and the email address, and uh, from the address, I need that field, and that's only the things that you'll get back in response. The deal is that you won't have caching anymore. You won't have like verbs, different kind of verbs with different kinds of headers. You can add headers, but pretty much that is it. You have a single endpoint that you call and call and get data. Okay. And this gives to the client a lot of flexibility. GitHub, for example, in the version 4, I think, they have this GraphQL uh, API, but not everyone needs GitHub. <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, uh, GraphQL, the QL meaning query language, is, is sort of the, in my mind, where it where it fits. So uh, I sort of, I tell this story about what technologies I think sort of belong where, um, and rest to the web is natural. I think GraphQL is for reporting for the most part, because you can set up a schema for the um, kinds of ad hoc reporting that a lot of companies will need. And so going through the time of building that, you know, information database, which is what it really is, in order to allow that, that's great. But using it for general use, I think uh, it's too easy to open up too much data to too many people. It's a, it's a issue of security and of only pushing requirements from the client side. Uh, and then something like uh, gRPC I talk about as being inside the data center or to something like IoT, um, because those are scenarios where hard contracts can really be a benefit, but not necessarily to the web. And so the different technologies, I think, all have their use cases. But right now, we're trying to find one use case for everything. Oh, REST doesn't work in every case really well. Let's bring in GraphQL and let it do everything. Uh, let's bring in this other thing and right. let it do everything. Let's go back to just XML requests from the web, right? Right. There are still use cases, I think, that RPC is acceptable for. So, I mean, I've definitely run into a couple. You know, even though it's been around forever, I, I actually, in the right s scenario, it works the best. Um, so I would caution you against like being a, showing any favoritism. I know it's really hard in .NET because, you know, my favoritism is like, I want to build everything in .NET, but sometimes the answer is not to do it in .NET. Sometimes the answer really is to build it in JavaScript or build it in PHP or whatever, because it's set up specifically for that scenario just a little bit easier. 
Well, now you're just talking crazy talk, Ms. Downing. Good. I know. Great. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't say decom. I'm grateful for that. For example, I, I was uh, I was talking about GraphQL at NDC London, uh, and I asked, okay, how many of you are doing REST APIs at the beginning of my talk? And all the all the hands were up. Okay, I'm doing REST APIs. And then I talked about REST and HOIS and everything that should be there, and then asked again. Who is doing REST APIs now? Only two hands. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very clear That's that, fun. well, we, we take REST for granted and say, ah, yeah. it's bad. No, it's not that bad. It suits a lot of purposes if you do it correctly. I mean, hate OIS and the resource yep. representation and everything, it has a meaning. So, or even with versioning, I mean, I've seen so many APIs having V1 in the URL and dying with V1 yeah. there. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, remember that's not that they're not respecting that version either. So like it, if it's yeah. a breaking change, I expect a V2, a V3. If yeah. you have like a, a minor, like something that will not break your schema, then that's fine. But in general, I expect the moment anything changes, I want a V2. I want the next V next. Well, and isn't that the basic definition of a V2 is this is a breaking change and I don't want to mess up my existing users. So I have that V1 there so they can keep working. Yeah, but that's extra work. They have to think about changing it. Then they have to think about hosting them side by side or do they host them forever? Do they sunset an earlier version? There's all these things you have to start thinking about. If there's going to be versioning, which I encourage you to have, make sure that you Think about what is the path to support multiple versions and what is the path to sunset? Yeah. Jeez, we should do a show on versioning, shouldn't we, Richard? Oh, yeah. yeah. Now you're just talking crazy. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's the show that came out today with John Skeet, isn't it? Yes, it oh, is, nice. actually. Oh, nice. So we won't dig, <laughs> How fortuitous. dig, Although, dig our hole in that. It was also the first show back since you got Corona. Yeah. And so I think we spent the first half just talking about the world we're in. It was, should have been geeking out with John Skeet. Yeah. Well, when John, yeah, when John Skeet talks about versioning, you and I both st- stopped and listened because oh, yeah. he's definitely battled that battle. Yeah. But, and I've dealt, I've lived in enterprise service bus projects long enough that this is what we're up against. Like you just can't, you, an API is forever. Right. It is. You know, bug fixes, yes. But once people are consuming it, I can't tell you that we've ever turned one off. We monitor and to see if there's no traffic left. But like every single time you shut it off, somebody screams sooner or later, typically later when it's much harder to turn it back on. And if nobody's using it, it costs you virtually nothing. Yep. But the problem is that most of uh, the companies or the systems, the client apps and the APIs are owned by the same company or teams. They do not have the problem of versioning like something that needs to be there and work. Because they will just go and change the client app, the Angular, React, or whatever to match the API. And it kind of defeats the purpose. Right. And I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all of the NDC conferences this year are going online. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. 
NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's Donna Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. He's Richard Campbell. Hey, wait a minute. And those are our amazing <laughs> esteemed panel. Did I say that? You did. I said that. I thought you were being. I thought that was on purpose. I was being funny. That's right. it. But I did it straight. That's pretty I did good. It totally straight. That's pretty good. And I'm not fixing it. You all can right. live with That's it. That's fine. It's all good. And in another world, we would be in Porto together right now, That's right. sitting on a stage having this conversation face-to-face with a bunch of wires and microphones and an audience. And instead, we're doing it online with an audience. I'm in the Slack channel. Folks mm-hmm. are watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're streaming it over YouTube and uh, a variety of other services. I'm glad we're able to do this together. And I'm glad we were able to put it on. Yes, me too. Uh, but obviously, it's been a, a little more complicated uh, to pull off. This uh, this API forever thing is uh, is interesting that I, I, I think we often put stuff up and just have no consideration for its impact long term. So I wonder if a lot of time it, it doesn't have much impact long term. What what happens to an API that nobody ever wants to use? It's it's an interesting question uh, because I think you do have to plan for APIs to live for a long time. I think one of the points mm-hmm. that um, um, my other panelists were making was more about how the versioning's done than whether we should do it or not. I know that a lot of companies right. don't do it at all. Um, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I talk a lot about versioning in, uh, to get it out of the URL. Cause I, I, it, in order for someone to consume a new version, that means changing every URL in their entire application versus opting right. so into with, like query so streams, now you're punishing headers. people for wanting to use the new thing. Yeah, or making it harder for them to use the new thing. And so your adoption of V1 doesn't go away as much because, uh, you know, if, if your next change isn't a breaking change, you might want to move everyone over without them having to opt into using the old API. Right. Arena's point before the break, which was you simply force people to use the new version by taking the old version away it's been updated it's you're broken now well you better use the new version huh am i wrong arena that's basically what you were implying um not quite i I was saying just uh because the companies own the client apps that are consuming those apis and Mm -hmm. uh, are building the apis then they have leverage and control about changing stuff so this way they're not forced no, uh, in a way to, to change to V2 and then think about deprecating fields or URL or forcing their consu- consumers to switch to the new version. So that's why right. I think they do not even think about, I don't know, changing to V2 in so the life cycle of the project. So here's a question then maybe for your listeners is, are you building an externally facing API or are you building one in a closed ecosystem? That's uh, like, what are people building right now? Because a lot of times, uh, unless you're bigger, like your Stripe or, you know, you are DigitalOcean or something like that, you may not have an externally facing API. It's just going to be for like the multi-divisions you've got going on inside of your company. And that does change things. Of course, you can cheat, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow some basic protocols, you know, when it comes to how you build stuff, especially as you have turnover with all of your developers that you don't want the learning curve to be more difficult. 
this versioning story inside your own a- API, uh, inside your own applications, I think is still important, especially as people are starting to look at microservices, because we want to be able to deploy them individually, not have a whole release. You're going to want to have maybe some older uh, components of microservices using V1, whereas the new stuff is using V2 and having them both. Otherwise, your API becomes the singular focus of, oh, we need to change and redeploy your entire microservice. Yeah. As a consumer of APIs, you're usually writing a service, you know, some sort of class or some sort of module that you can call those APIs through. It's a really good idea. And I know it just seems like obvious, but if you have one field that is the base URL for all of your APIs, so that way, if you want to change versions, it's one variable rather than going through all of your service calls or whatever it is and, and trying to update those. And it may seem like obvious now, but you, you know, develop, you know how developers are. They just charge ahead and build out a class with a bunch of static methods and the APIs are hard coded in there. No, put them in a config file and now you can, you know, comment out the, the base URL and the config file. Just change, make one change. And now you're on a different version. And that's, of course, if the base URL is is the the version entity, right? I would extend that to to also, you know, the creating of that base URL would include uh, the connection to um, HTTP, mostly because often you're going to want that same place to put in your headers. Maybe that's a a token for authentication. Maybe it's a header for versioning. Maybe it's just some other piece of information. But centralize that creation of your connection to that server, and that's going to include base URL. That's going to include the other sort of overhead of that call that you may need because that's becoming more and more common. I have a a thought as you've been talking about how people approach, you know, just um, building just the basic like URL there. Remember the longer that an API, whether it's inside of your firewall, your company, or it's externally exposed, the longer it lives, the more opportunity there is for exposing it and it getting spammed or, you know, misused. So every time I build something now, I have to put on my hat that says, how can somebody misuse this API for either information or to bring down my server or whatever it is? So that's the first thing I look at is, can somebody, like, how would someone misuse this if they got into our system? And so that's where rate limiting is important and logging becomes important. If you start noticing the same IP is starting, is spamming you all the time, that may be something that you want to be alerted about. And that's not something that most developers start with. They don't think, oh, what happens if somebody gets in? I I now design APIs very defensively. One way to mitigate that if you're not doing it yourself is to use something like Azure API service so that you can set up rules that will automatically do rate limiting. So you can guarantee that, you know, your cluster doesn't get brought down or one of your one of your servers gets brought down by, by spam. Um, those, there's so many good things. I, I actually did a deep dive into the API service, uh, working on a project and, uh, had to do all the research into all the filters and the, the stuff. Oh, yeah. That really, really. It's also a billing stuff. component there too, oh, right? Yeah. That you can, you can charge people for utilization. Yep. It's important to think about that. And that's not something that was originally thought about, even in some of the banking software that I helped create and um, in the beginnings anyway, is that we didn't think about what happens when our 
our mobile app gets released and now our APIs are getting hit all the time by people who want to know all the time if they got their stimulus check, if they got whatever, <laughs> are we going to be able right, to handle right. this? You know, that's just, that's the good traffic, let alone the people who are trying to sniff around and see if they can get, you know, forced in a little bit of that URL and they didn't really lock it down very well. So that's just something that, you know, throw a little chaos engineering at your API. Can you break yeah. it? That's the first place to start. It's just a runaway piece of software. And deploy it on something bigger than a Raspberry Pi. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've told this story before, but in the old days, uh, I, I got uh, the, the local telco put up an SMS service. This is back in like the candy bar phone days where literally text messages were real text messages. And yeah, I wrote a little app that screwed up and sent me 32,767 text messages in about a second. I love that story. And you had to delete each one by hand. And the phone rings. So it, yeah, it <laughs> takes me about an hour to get to tier three tech support because tier one and tier two have no idea what the heck I'm talking right. about. When I get to the tier three guy, I go, hi, you know, I've been experimenting with your API and I accidentally sent myself 32,767 texts. He goes, oh, it's you. Which happens to no, be clearly that happens to be the upper boundary yeah. of of an integer, yeah. isn't it? Or or a no, it's not that actually. I've a, a signed integer. Yeah, 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 that's right. It was a signed small integer. But yeah, the clearly the guy on the other end was the guy who just seen that come in and went, "Wow!" It's like, okay, I'm going to delete him on this end. You do have, only have to delete the first one because it literally would only load them one at a time into the phone. And don't do that again. But you know, rate limits. Yeah, I really. Uh, hate deeply nested objects. So imagine if you had a really nested response from that API on top of how many responses you're getting. Yeah. Oh my yeah. I did the same thing with see- an email server a long time ago. So I, I feel your pain. <laughs> Azure, AWS, or whatever cloud provider gives us some pieces of technologies to put on top of our APIs. But nowadays, um, I get the feeling that uh, developers are like, oh, I'm using that. I do not need to design my API properly or I don't care about status codes or whatever. I'm just using that. When that piece of technology is there to enforce what we already do. I agree. I think it's a lazy approach to do it that way, for sure. I mean, I think you're completely correct. It Also, you don't know what the future brings. Maybe you need to scale things up and you have to move it. For some other, for yeah. some reason, to something else. Lately, that has been the case for a lot of our clients. Um, before I moved to Okta, that they're like, ah, you know what? Azure's too expensive. We cut a deal with Amazon. We need to move over. So, what has that just done to your APIs? Sure, right. You know, right. This should be something that could be self-contained enough that you should be able to pick it up and move it, and it still has some basic thoughtfulness around it. And remember to design your uh, APIs. With status codes in mind, that's another piece of the of the design. And <laughs> in case anybody doesn't know, there is more than two hundred and five hundred. Those aren't the only two status codes. <laughs> How about four hundred and nine? Yeah, call it with your favorite status code. <laughs> yep, four sixteen. <laughs> that reminds me of that joke where. A um, bunch of friends get together all the time, and they keep telling the same jokes over and over again, much like Richard and me. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and instead of calling out the the jokes, they just numbered them all. 
Like, 416, everybody goes, ah, ha, ha. <laughs> I mean, I do feel that way a little bit whenever I get a 401 that I didn't expect. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Uh, I'm looking at the YouTube stream, and there was a question from Hans Jurgen Bachenes, and I hope I didn't mis- smash That's your name too much. That's impressive. Uh, yeah, who, uh, who, who, said, who asked, should you design your APIs to be infrastructure independent? And I think this speaks to exactly what Arena was saying, was what happens if we have to shift to AWS? It does, does that make sense to actually make it into infrastructure independent? At, at least plan for what you would need to do when you need to move infrastructure. I, I'm not sure. This is like the old, the old story of uh, writing a database extraction layer in case you need to change database servers. Is there's a cost there, right. and if the cost is worth it, at least have a plan. Uh, if you if you if you aren't going to um, completely make it, well, uh, and and Hans makes the example of if you use API management in Azure, that's an Azure specific feature. If you're yeah. shifting to AWS, how are you going to rate limit? Yeah, exactly. And so you have to decide how much you're going to hand over in any situation. That's part of the mm-hmm, reason mm-hmm. why. You know, containerization is such an interesting concept to me because it forces the developer to still think it doesn't matter where this lives. It just matters what it does, and then it can move from there. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't take advantage of things like Azure Key Vault or anything like that, you know, to interact with your application because you don't want to be putting everything inside of what you're building. Um, but as I, I agree with Sean completely, take an afternoon and just say, let's pretend that we scale. Let's pretend that we take off because everybody's buying our products. How are we going to scale this? Let's just take an afternoon to say, this is what we would do. And that gives you also a basic idea of what to say when you go to the higher ups and say, this is probably what it's going to cost if and when we scale. Yeah. It's the old startup uh, joke where, you know, you create a startup, you turn it on on the internet. The first 10 sales are like, oh my God, this is great. The first 100,000 is like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And when you hit a million, you're like, oh, we can't afford to sell it anymore. (laughs) 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 We can't afford the infrastructure to sell anything. Uh, I, 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 this also feels very Yagni to me to plan for moving between clouds. The chances are low. I think I'd rather you, I don't want to write more code than I have to. And it would be one of the costs of migrating is, yeah, we're going to have to retool how we, how we rate limit and, uh, and bill out our API access. It's about your risk assessment. We're not saying you have to build it all. Just give it some thought. Just like. Yes, for sure. Where would you like to put that responsibility? Yeah, and acknowledge that there's a cost. Yeah. If you move it to Bob's container store, then you're in trouble (laughs) no matter what you do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Separate issue. It's like Joe's discount shark cages.com. Exactly. Uh, By the way, I I went to the container store the other day. They don't sell any containers, (laughs) they they just have boxes and lids. I don't know what. What? Truth in advertising. Yeah. Sorry, I talked over you, Arita. Arena. Uh, no, uh, what I wanted to uh, to say is that uh, whether cloud locking it's a bit extreme. There might be some business scenarios where okay, you do not want to be cloud provider locked. But uh, right. what what if something happens? I don't know, and you do not have the money to pay cloud infrastructure, and then you decide to go on premise somewhere. Your API still yeah. needs to be working. I mean, without API management and everything in there, 
you can switch from key, Azure Key Vault to, I don't know, holding things into environment variables somewhere mm -hmm. in that machine. So then you're ready there to switch solutions. a few things. Yeah, there are. So, But it also is a, it's sort of a false savings. I'm really going to save money moving on-premises, but I have to now write my own API rate limiting layer. And wait for Dell to ship me servers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a library for everything. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I, I agree. I don't want to create my own stuff that way. I think it's important to use things that are standard for sure. But I have seen too many clients just get burned where they're like, we have to just start over from scratch because now we moved host providers. Like it's, yeah. and it wasn't necessary. It literally, they, they just, you could have contained the damage a little bit. It didn't have to be as dramatic is what I'm getting at. But they wanted to re re uh, write it in uh, React. So how are, nice. else were they going to do it? <laughs> well, I also think that whole, you know, I'm having problems in REST, so I'm going to redo this in GraphQL. Yeah. It, we, and it's like your own problems follow you anyway, right? It's like, but you get left alone for a few weeks to retool it, which is all you really wanted is so people stop yelling. Kicking the can down the road. Yeah, I know that we're. I know that there's a little bit of a love hate relationship right now with GraphQL, but we need to pay attention and get good at it because it's not going to go away. It's sure. definitely something that's being embraced specifically by the open source community, and so that's something that we should have an opinion about the right way. To Irina's point, to use something like GraphQL. Uh, I just want to make sure everyone realizes that REST is becoming the JavaScript of APIs. Right? It's the hated thing that actually <laughs> runs everything. <laughs> Yeah. And nobody does it well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to paraphrase from a comment here from uh, Rico in the, in the chat, uh, where he's asking us to compare REST and, and, uh, and GraphQL, but he also mentions GRPC. And we haven't talked about GRPC at all yet. So what about GRPC in the in API? And world? by the way, Sean, it's GR. PC, not PC. GP. PC. Oh, it is? Are you sure? GPRC? Are you sure? <laughs> Let's check again. <laughs> That's why I have uh, editors. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're not switching words true. around for you, buddy. Yeah, we're not going to switch to so that. Damn it. Um, so gRPC is interesting, and I think, I think a lot of people like GraphQL think it's the next thing that can fix REST. And I just don't see it. Uh, gRPC is contract-based. It's actually more similar to WCF in some ways. It's binary. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a great solution inter-data center, so server-to-server, -server, especially in microservices. But also yep. because it, it works so well in, in um, resource-constraint scenarios, that IoT, server-to-IoT, is a beautiful place for it because uh, the serialization overhead on an IoT device, you just don't want to have to deal with JSON serialization in that case. Um, sure. And because it lives in the same place that something like REST or GraphQL do, you don't have to reinvent the way you authenticate it or authorize it. Or I mean, It's just more HTTP. It just happens to use HTTP2 instead of uh, um, being able to work on HTTP1. Yeah. So I think comparing REST with with GraphQL is like comparing comparing onions to oranges. No pun intended. Onions but, to oranges. Um, I like that. Yeah, I mean they fit a purpose. Scenarios, well defined scenarios. But I think people should uh, take a step back and understand the technology before mm -hmm. throwing in to using it into production. 
Yeah, GraphQL works. It has specific scenario where it shines. But don't say that REST is bad. Don't say, oh, you know, querying REST APIs, bah, sucks. I'm going to, to GraphQL. I mean, there is all data for querying yeah. endpoints and right. so on. Right? Oh, so she said I all data. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I actually said. recommended it to a customer recently because their use case was being able to query from Excel. And Excel supports data out of the box, doesn't support um, GraphQL yet, doesn't report REST. And so even though I'm not a huge fan of OData on the whole, this was the right tool for them. And that's what I, yeah, sure. I, I wish people would think about more is what is the right tool? And, uh, you know, it isn't about, oh, this doesn't work well for me. Like Richard said so well, you're going to take your, your debt with you. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's sort of like thinking I'm going to get divorced and I'm going to find the right girl. Uh, no, you're going to you, remember that whole stack of magazines that, uh, all those issues you have, they're coming with you. You're moving with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, right. I, this is a family yeah, right. show. <laughs> all right. You got there, Sean. I think you got delivered there. on that one. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you cut out the word magazine? <laughs> well, nice. well, here's uh, yeah, magazines. What are those? I haven't seen a magazine in years, but that's anyway. true. Um, but you know, it all, it, this is sort of like a, an aesthetic that we profess on .NET Rocks over and over again, which is there's a lot of stuff to know. And the more you know, the better informed decision you can have. So mm -hmm. it pays to have someone on your staff whose sole purpose it is, is R&D, you know, just to research these things and find out what, what does that do? You know, what is, what does GraphQL do? What does OData well, do? And how, and how would that fit in? And how would that fit into us? Right, exactly. So it isn't something that you can just take an hour on lunch and go Google your way around and, you know, try to make a decision about a technology. Your seniors or your mids in like the next level is give them a task. Hey, give us, you know, the options. I remember for my mobile uh, group that I was in, uh, I was in uh, a group at the company before Okta where it was my job to say, okay, here's the client thing. Tell us which platform it should be and why. So that means you get a couple weeks to go and play around with React and native stuff and whatever you want. Just give us a, a couple of options as what you think would work. And that is that really grew me in terms of my own chops. So that's a good way to do it. Right. And of course, you know, it also means that your more talented people who have a little bit more responsibility also don't get weighed down with additional R&D that that allows the next person to grow. Sure. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this. I presume the panel all sports is then that you have, you're not going to use only one of these communication layers for everything. That's how you're I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not it's, it's, you're not, it's, there are hammers and there are screwdrivers <laughs> and pliers. Yeah. And as long as you're calling them from Silverlight, <laughs> as long as you're, you're calling them from Silverlight, that's all that really matters. <laughs> <laughs> I almost did a spit take there, Sean. Nice. Uh, all right. All right. Well, we just have a couple minutes left. Does anybody have any final words uh, or any anything that they want to throw out there? Sean, you said you actually have a you said you had a course, Sean, that you that you do on API development. Yeah. No, uh, I have a design course. Um, I also sort of want. Uh, I'm I've been getting angry about development for a long time, so I decided to start have having some rants. So if you go to YouTube slash 
Sean Wildermuth, you'll see a new series I'm doing of just complaining about software. I, like I love about that. that. I love that. How about you, Irina? <laughs> Is there anything that you want to uh, th- throw out there? Any resources? Um, the World Wide Web <laughs> and technology and docs. And I just want to say that every developer should make an informed decision, not choose the bright and shiny stuff that goes around and changes very often. I mean, just knowing about a piece of tech will allow you to take the best decision for your project. I mean, all data, REST, so sometimes and so RPC on. Not... is a good idea? It depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> That's a great it depends. answer. It... I like that answer a lot. CGI. I mean, <laughs> it depends <laughs> on the business. Never a good idea. Them. No, 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 no. Make the bad man stop. Computer <laughs> graphics. No. Um, Heather, how about you? <laughs> well, uh, I do have um, several YouTube videos out about working with APIs. Uh, and, of course, I just got started on Twitch. So if you want to follow me, that's my name awesome. on Twitch. Yeah. <laughs> what is it, actually? Because we're listening on it. Coraline. Spell it. Yeah, spell it. Q-U-O-R-R-A-L-Y-N-E. It's a throwback to Tron ah. legacy. So, yes. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitch, and we can kind of create um, scenario-based APIs together so that you can kind of learn directly. But I also have several YouTube videos on it. I think what I really want to impress upon everyone is to secure your APIs from inception. From the very first time when you just do, do a templated API and push it somewhere, make sure you immediately secure it because you will forget. Right. <laughs> and then you'll get audited. How, how would you know that? I mean, <laughs> Maybe. I've been on some pretty big projects where somebody forgot to put some sort of security in place. And um, yeah, that's never a good look. And it's never a, a good thing to face. So mm. just do it up front as just part of you, know, you set up your repo, set up the security from the beginning, and you don't have to think about it anymore. It's just in there. Very good. And uh, Heather, you have the last word, so I'd like to thank you all for listening to .NET Rocks, and I'd like to thank Sean Wildermuth, Irina Skortu, and Heather Downing. Thank you all, and Richard and I would like to say uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the